Chapter 18 After the mysterious interview in the Four Chains the one so abruptly ended there by Billy nothing especially German to the story occurred until the events now about to be narrated. Elsewhere it has been said that in the lack of frigates, of course better sailors than line of battle ships, in the English squadron up the straits at that period, the Indomitable was occasionally employed not only as an available substitute for a scout, but at times on detached service of more important kind. This was not alone because of her sailing qualities, not common in a ship of her rate, but quite as much, probably, that the character of her commander, it was thought, specially adapted him for any duty where under unforeseen difficulties a prompt initiative might have to be taken in some matter demanding knowledge and ability in addition to those qualities implied in good seamanship. It was on an expedition of the latter sort, a somewhat distant one, and when the Indomitable was almost at her furthest remove from the fleet, that in the latter part of an afternoon watch she unexpectedly came in sight of a ship of the enemy. It proved to be a frigate. The latter perceiving through the glass that the weight of men and metal would be heavily against her, invoking her light heels, crowded sail to get away. After a chase urged almost against hope and lasting until about the middle of the first dog watch, she signally succeeded in effecting her escape. Not long after the pursuit had been given up, and ere the excitement incident thereto had altogether waned away, the master at arms, ascending from his cavernous sphere, made his appearance cap in hand by the mainmast, respectfully waiting the notice of Captain Veer then solitary walking the weather side of the quarterdeck, doubtless somewhat chafed at the failure of the pursuit. The spot where Claggett stood was the place allotted to men of lesser grades, seeking some more particular interview either with the officer of the deck or the captain himself. But from the latter it was not often that a sailor or petty officer of those days would seek a hearing, only some exceptional cause, would, according to established custom, have warranted that. Presently, just as the commander absorbed in his reflections was on the point of turning aft in his promenade, he became sensible of Claggett's presence, and saw the doffed cap held in deferential expectancy. Here be it said that Captain Veer's personal knowledge of this petty officer had only begun at the time of the ship's last sailing from home, Claggett then for the first, in transfer from a ship detained for repairs, supplying on board the indomitable the place of a previous master-at-arms disabled and ashore. No sooner did the commander observe who it was that deferentially stood awaiting his notice, then a peculiar expression came over him. It was not unlike that which uncontrollably will flit across the countenance of one at unawares encountering a person who, though known to him indeed, has hardly been long enough known for thorough knowledge, but something in whose aspect nevertheless now for the first provokes a vaguely repellent distaste. But coming to a stand, and resuming much of his wonted official manner, save that a sort of impatience lurked in the intonation of the opening word, he said, well, what is it, master-at-arms? With the air of a subordinate grieved at the necessity of being a messenger of ill-tidings, and while conscientiously determined to be frank, yet equally resolved upon shunning overstatement, Claggett, at this invitation or rather summons to Disperthen, spoke up. What he said, conveyed in the language of no uneducated man, was to the effect following, if not altogether in these words, namely, that during the chase and preparations for the possible encounter he had seen enough to convince him that at least one sailor aboard was a dangerous character in a ship mustering some who not only had taken a guilty part in the late serious troubles, but others also who, like the man in question, 
had entered His Majesty's service under another form, than enlistment. At this point Captain Veer with some impatience interrupted him, be direct, man, say impressed men. Claggett made a gesture of subservience, and proceeded. Quite lately he, Claggett, had begun to suspect that on the gun decks some sort of movement prompted by the sailor in question was covertly going on, but he had not thought himself warranted in reporting the suspicion so long as it remained indistinct. But from what he had that afternoon observed in the man referred to, the suspicion of something clandestine going on had advanced to a point less removed from certainty. He deeply felt, he added, the serious responsibility assumed in making a report involving such possible consequences to the individual mainly concerned, besides tending to augment those natural anxieties which every naval commander must feel in view of extraordinary outbreaks so recent as those which, he sorrowfully said it, it needed not to name. Now at the first broaching of the matter Captain Veer, taken by surprise, could not wholly dissemble his disquietude. But as Claggett went on, the former's aspect changed into restiveness under something in the witness manner in giving his testimony. However, he refrained from interrupting him. And Claggett, continuing, concluded with this, God forbid, your honor, that the indomitables should be the experience of the... Never mind that. Here peremptorily broke in the superior, his face altering with anger, instinctively divining the ship that the other was about to name, one in which the Nori mutiny had assumed a singularly tragical character that for a time jeopardized the life of its commander. Under the circumstances he was indignant at the purposed illusion. When the commissioned officers themselves were on all occasions very heedful how they referred to the recent events, for a petty officer unnecessarily to allude to them in the presence of his captain, this struck him as a most immodest presumption. Besides, to his quick sense of self-respect, it even looked under the circumstances, something like an attempt to alarm him. Nor at first was he without some surprise that one who so far as he had hitherto come under his notice had shown considerable tact in his function should in this particular event such lack of it. But these thoughts and kindred dubious ones flitting across his mind were suddenly replaced by an intuitional surmise which, though as yet obscure in form, served practically to effect his reception of the ill tidings. Certain it is, that long versed in everything pertaining to the complicated gun-deck life, which like every other form of life, has its secret minds and dubious side, the side popularly disclaimed, Captain Veer did not permit himself to be unduly disturbed by the general tenor of his subordinate's report. Furthermore, if in view of recent events prompt action should be taken at the first palpable sign of recurring insubordination, for all that, not judicious would it be, he thought, to keep the idea of lingering disaffection alive by undue forwardness in crediting an informer, even if his own subordinate, and charged among other things with police surveillance of the crew. This feeling would not perhaps have so prevailed with him, were it not that upon a prior occasion the patriotic zeal officially evinced by Claggett had somewhat irritated him as appearing rather supersensible and strained. Furthermore, something even in the official's self-possessed and somewhat ostentatious manner in making his specifications strangely reminded him of a bandsman, a perjurous witness in a capital case before a court-martial ashore of which when a lieutenant, he, Captain Veer, had been a member. Now the peremptory check given to Claggett in the matter of the arrested illusion was quickly followed up by this, 
you say that there is at least one dangerous man aboard. Name him. William Budd. A foretopman, your honor. William Budd, repeated Captain Veer with unfeigned astonishment, and mean you the man that Lieutenant Ratcliffe took from the merchantman not very long ago the young fellow who seems to be so popular with the men Billy, the handsome sailor, as they call him. The same, your honor, but for all his youth and good looks, a deep one. Not for nothing does he insinuate himself into the goodwill of his shipmates, since at the least all hands will at a pinch say a good word for him at all hazards. Did Lieutenant Ratcliffe happen to tell your honor of that adroit fling of buds, jumping up in the cutter's bow under the merchantman's stern when he was being taken off? It is even masked by that sort of good-humoured air that at heart he resents his impressment. You have but noted his fair cheek. A man-trap may be under his ruddy-tipped daisies. Now the handsome sailor, as a signal figure among the crew, had naturally enough attracted the captain's attention from the first. Though in general not very demonstrative to his officers, he had congratulated Lieutenant Ratcliffe upon his good fortune in lighting on such a fine specimen of the genus Homo, who in the nude might have posed for a statue of young Adam before the fall. As to Billy's adieu to the ship rights of man, which the boarding lieutenant had indeed reported to him, but in a deferential way more as a good story than aught else, Captain Veer, though mistakenly understanding it as a satiric sally, had but thought so much the better of the impressed man for it, as a military sailor, admiring the spirit that could take an arbitrary enlistment so merrily and sensibly. The foretopman's conduct, too, so far as it had fallen under the captain's notice, had confirmed the first happy augury, while the new recruit's qualities as a sailorman seemed to be such that he had thought of recommending him to the executive officer for promotion to a place that would more frequently bring him under his own observation, namely, the captaincy of the mizzentop, replacing there in the starboard watch a man not so young whom partly for that reason he deemed less fitted for the post. Be it parenthesized here that since the mizzentopman having not to handle such breadths of heavy canvas as the lower sails on the mainmast and foremast, a young man if of the right stuff not only seems best adapted to duty there, but in fact is generally selected for the captaincy of that top, and the company under him are light hands and often but striplings. In sum, Captain Veer had from the beginning deemed Billy Budd to be what in the naval parlance of the time was called a king's bargain, that is to say, for his Britannic Majesty's Navy a capital investment at small outlay or none at all. After a brief pause during which the reminiscences above mentioned passed vividly through his mind and he weighed the import of Claggett's last suggestion conveyed in the phrase mantrap under his daisies, and the more he weighed it the less reliance he felt in the informer's good faith, suddenly he turned upon him and in a low voice, Do you come to me, Master Atarms, with so foggy a tale? As to Bud, cite me an act or spoken word of his confirmatory of what you in general charge against him. Stay, drawing nearer to him, heed what you speak. Just now, and in a case like this, there is a yardarm end for the false witness. Ah, your honor. Sighed Claggett, mildly shaking his shapely head as in sad deprecation of such unmerited severity of tone. Then, bridling erecting himself as in virtuous self-assertion he circumstantially alleged certain words and acts, which collectively, if credited, led to presumptions mortally inculpating Bud. And for some of these averments, he added, 
substantiating proof was not far. With grey eyes impatient and distrustful essaying to fathom to the bottom Claggett's calm violet ones, Captain Veer again heard him out, then for the moment stood ruminating. The mood he evinced, Claggett, himself for the time liberated from the other's scrutiny steadily regarded with a look difficult to render, a look curious of the operation of his tactics, a look such as might have been that of the spokesman of the envious children of Jacob deceptively imposing upon the troubled patriarch the blood-dyed coat of young Joseph. Though something exceptional in the moral quality of Captain Veer made him, in earnest encounter with a fellow man, a veritable touchstone of that man's essential nature, yet now as to Claggett and what was really going on in him, his feeling partook less of intuitional conviction than of strong suspicion clogged by strange dubieties. The perplexity, he evinced proceeded less from aught touching the man informed against as Claggett doubtless opined than from considerations how best to act in regard to the informer. At first indeed he was naturally for summoning that substantiation of his allegations which Claggett said was at hand. But such a proceeding would result in the matter at once getting abroad, which in the present stage of it, he thought, might undesirably affect the ship's company. If Claggett was a false witness, that closed the affair. And therefore before trying the accusation, he would first practically test the accuser, and he thought this could be done in a quiet undemonstrative way. The measure he determined upon involved a shifting of the scene, a transfer to a place less exposed to observation than the broad quarter-deck. For although the few gunroom officers there at the time had, in due observance of naval etiquette, withdrawn to leeward the moment Captain Veer had begun his promenade on the deck's weather side, and though during the colloquy with Claggett they of course ventured not to diminish the distance, and though throughout the interview Captain Veer's voice was far from high, and Claggett's silvery and low, and the wind in the cordage and the wash of the sea helped the more to put them beyond earshot. Nevertheless, the interview's continuance already had attracted observation from some topmen aloft and other sailors in the waist or further forward. Having determined upon his measures, Captain Veer forthwith took action. Abruptly turning to Claggett he asked, Master at arms, is it now Bud's watch aloft? No, your honour. Whereupon, Mr. Wilkes. Summoning the nearest midshipman, tell Albert to come to me. Albert was the captain's hammock boy, a sort of sea valet in whose discretion and fidelity his master had much confidence. The lad appeared. You know Bud the foretopman? I do, sir. Go find him. It is his watch off. Manage to tell him out of earshot that he is wanted aft. Contrive it that he speaks to nobody. Keep him in talk yourself. And not till you get well aft here, not till then let him know that the place where he is wanted is my cabin. You understand? Go? Master at arms, show yourself on the decks below, and when you think it time for Albert to be coming with his man, stand by quietly to follow the sailor in. <laughs>